Fellowship. What's love got to do with it? Listen as I read 1 Corinthians 13, preaching from from verses 1 through 6 today. I'm actually going to read the verse from the previous chapter, the very last verse, which brings us uh, into chapter 13. He's just been talking about the unity in our diversity. He's talked about spiritual gifts. He says even to desire the best gifts. So beginning in verse 31 of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. First Corinthians 13 has come to be called the love chapter. Even as I read it this morning around the breakfast table, it was commented, ah, the love chapter. I want you to see it in the context that it is set. In chapter 12 that I preached from last week, we saw that the Lord has brought us together in his fellowship. We are united to God in Christ. And there is, therefore, a unity and a fellowship that is shared with others in Christ, while there's also a diversity, especially a diversity of gifts. It's in this light that Paul used that wonderful analogy of a body, a single body that has lots of different members, and all of those diverse members come together in one. 
So we talk about unity and diversity. And Paul talks about some of those different gifts. And in that light, Paul had urged the church to earnestly desire the best gifts. Those uh, thinking especially uh, those that are most able to, uh, to be building up the church in their holy faith. Now, all of the gifts are, are designed in that fashion. But the, in saying earnestly desire the best gifts, Paul immediately goes on and says, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is the way of Christian love. And in a meditation on Christian fellowship, it is vitally important that we learn this excellent way, this way of Christian love. I want to begin in verses 1 through 3 by demonstrating what Paul does, that, that love is superior to all gifts. Love is superior to all gifts. And in these verses, he describes what it would be like having these gifts without love. That's quite a list of gifts, isn't it? If you look down the, these verses, it, uh, they are often singled out as what we would call extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, miracles, self-sacrificing charity. Paul mentions these especially because some of the errors that the Corinthian church was falling into. Errors that, out of their selfishness, that they were indulging to the damage and detriment of the name of God and of the Christian fellowship that they should enjoy. They were emphasizing the gifts instead of the giver. And they were using the gifts to elevate themselves over and above the others around them. The Lord had given them to serve and to bless others, and they were turning them around and saying, well, look at me. It's as if they were saying, uh, come and see what I can do. So Paul puts the gifts of the Spirit in their proper place, the means to an end, rather than an end in and of themselves. The gifts were and are God's grace to us to meet the needs of the church rather than a goal to have them for our own personal satisfaction. So Paul says, even if you have what we might call these best gifts, words that he used, if you do not have love, you are nothing. You are nothing. This is the more excellent way. Love is better. Better than tongues? Well, let's think about that. It's not my intention to go deeply into each of these, but to think from a high perspective about the place and purpose of the gifts God gave and their abuse. God gave the gift of tongues at a specific time to communicate in foreign languages the gospel. It was there so that others would understand this great news of the coming of Jesus Christ. You see it especially on the day of Pentecost as people were gathered from around that, uh, that, that 
the Roman Empire. They're gathered in Jerusalem, and people heard the news in their own native tongues. But if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Just noise, not music. The lack of love makes even this gift discordant to the church. It's not beneficial. Rather than bringing the gospel to a diverse people group so that they would hear it in their own language, it's been turned on its head so as to say, look at how amazing I am. And what does that do? Well, it tends to separate individuals rather than to draw them together in the fellowship of the gospel. What about prophecy? Surely that is a great gift. Prophecy was the gift to speak God's word with authority. Surely that's a good gift. But, says Paul, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Think again about the purpose of the gifts to build others up. And in this case, prophecy was given so that they would hear, thus says the Lord. It's very important for this to take place, especially in this transitional period where we didn't have the New Testament. God gave prophets so that they would hear, thus says the Lord, and know what it is that Jesus did, would know what it is that we are to do in response. But without love, I am nothing. The proclamation becomes marred by a, an attitude of arrogance or an attitude that says, look at me, rather than look at the Lord. Listen to the Lord. No, it says, listen to me. You say doesn't match what you do in that case. And the clarity of the proclamation becomes muddied. Surely miracles are a great gift. Maybe the greatest gift. God gave miracles to verify the work of Jesus Christ. He gave them to demonstrate the gospel, to demonstrate the the truth of all the things that Jesus said and all the things that Jesus did. But, says Paul, though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains but have not love. Once again, I am nothing. Here again, think of the purpose of the miracles. In this case, they were to point to Jesus Christ, and the truth of his person, the truth of his work. But the lack of love diverts attention away from him and towards yourself. Is love better than self-sacrificing charity, as is demonstrated here? 
God has graced some with the gift of self-denial, some to the extent that they lay down their lives to help others. Surely this focus on others fulfills the purpose. But Paul says, though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. As self-sacrificing as you can be on the outside, if it is without love, it is in the end self-seeking rather than seeking the good of others. Meaning and value of love then shines through at this point because it demonstrates the type of love that Christ has had for you. God unselfishly gave his son to die on the cross for your sin so that you would have life. He freely gives his righteousness to those who repent and trust in Jesus. But the life without love is senseless, meaningless, and of no profit. Interesting that he uses that terminology because it's part of his language of the chapter before that I pointed out last week. Chapter 12, verse 7, God gives gifts to the profit of all. But if they are used without love, they are of no profit. They may be outwardly important. They may be uh, extraordinary in their demonstration. They may be extremely self-sacrificing. But without Christian love, they are of no profit. And having warned about life without love, Paul goes on now to describe what love is in verses 4 through 7. And he gives a kind of punchy list that he doesn't develop. He just lists these things. And the effect of it is to give you lots of material to meditate on. It gives you lots of, of material to apply to the unity and diversity of the body of Christ. And what I'm going to do today is to take the first steps of meditating on these. I've divided them into into seven uh, headlines here for the purpose of this message. And as it falls out into seven, I'm going to encourage you to take one each day and to say to yourself, how can I show the love of Christ in this way? My family, to my church, and to my community. How can I pray against lovelessness, and how can I show love in this way? So first of all, love is patient. Verse 4 says it this way, that love suffers long. That's the literal translation of the word that Paul uses here. And uh, we've come to translate it as patient. To be patient means to, to practice self-control and perseverance and to do that especially when you are suffering. Maybe the suffering of waiting for something to come, 
That's the way we often think about, about patients. You're expecting something, and so you're patient for that to happen. It can also apply to the way in which you, uh, you bear with one another, the way in which you, you suffer wrongs or even suffer persecution. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. It's part of the new nature that he calls Christians to put on in Colossians chapter 3. They are all a demonstration of an attribute of God himself who shows patience with us as sinners. In other words, it is a vital expression of love and a vital expression of Christian fellowship. How so? Well, without it, you will tend to spiral into self-absorption, frustration, and anger. It reveals a deep lacking of trust in God who does all things well and wisely. A lacking of trust that leads you to say, I need to take matters into my own hands and to grasp after that thing that you desire rather than patiently waiting on God and patiently waiting with one another. For love is patient. It recognizes that God has drawn you into fellowship with himself and into fellowship with believers who are far from perfect. That's putting it nicely. We sin against each other. But love is patient, bearing with the faults of others. It means that many times that you will overlook the sins of others, for love covers a multitude of sins. And where it isn't appropriate to cover, patience means that you don't rush to judgment. You work patiently with, with each other, seeking a peaceful resolution. That's a mouthful. Meditate on it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Here's another fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. It's another attribute of God. I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So think about it in the context here. You may have all sorts of God-given gifts. But if you're not kind to one another, those will be meaningless. Let me just say that great shame comes upon the Christian church by the meanness of brothers and sisters to each other. Really, brothers and sisters in Christ can be, can be so mean to each other. Meanness that is descriptive of, of a vindictive character towards someone, of taking delight in hurting or embarrassing someone else of remembering past sins and making sure that they don't 
forget those or teasing them, using your position or your strength or power to just be downright mean. But God's loving kindness has saved you from hell itself. Paul links kindness to forgiveness. It is to be like Christ, to be kind and forgiving to one another. Practically speaking, it means that you genuinely forgive. Rather than remembering an offense and holding it against someone, you genuinely forgive them. That is a kindness that is divine. It is a kindness that comes from love. Love is kind, another mouthful. Meditate on it and practice it. Love does not envy. Envy means that you compare yourself to others and become dissatisfied. Jealousy sets in over what you have in comparison to what they have. Sets in over what you've achieved and what they've achieved and the honor that they have received because of that. And you compare yourself to others. And not only become dissatisfied with your own lot, but that you chafe over your neighbor's fortune. You chafe and want what they have. And you chafe and and talk about meanness, you begin to think that they don't deserve that. You deserve it. It can start so quietly and so subtly. You're uncomfortable with your friend's wealth or their success, their accomplishments. And slowly but surely, you begin to turn green. You heard that phrase? Kids, do you know what that means to be green with envy? Of course, you don't literally turn green. I hope none of you are starting to check your skin. Is my, tur- is my skin turning green? Well, that's not what, he mean- what that means. Green is the color of decay and of poison. And envy poisons a relationship. Turn green with envy is to have your heart poisoned towards those who ought to be brothers and sisters. Love does not envy. It teaches you to be content where God has you. And it teaches you to appreciate the blessings that God has given to your friends. To even praise God for that. To be happy for them, genuinely happy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Simply put, arrogance and pride do not belong in the Christian life. Some translations put it, love does not brag and is not arrogant. It's the opposite of humility. But pride puts the emphasis on you. It disregards the interests and disregards the value of those around you. You push them down so as to promote yourself. Parades itself. 
think of that parade that calls attention to what you have done and who, who you are. But love leads you to think of others as better than yourself. It looks out for their interests. It is, after all, the attitude of Jesus, our Savior, says Paul in Philippians 2. It is the attitude of Jesus when the second person of the Trinity humbled himself, taking upon himself our human nature and the nature of a servant. That is love. Love does not behave Rudely does not seek its own. I put these two together because it seems like, uh, like they go together well. When I think of someone acting rudely, I think of them in a self-seeking way doing something that is, is shameful to gain attention. Rudeness uh, kind of shoulders someone else out of the way. And uh, being rude to that individual is another way of pressing them down in order to build yourself up. It is is ultimately a self-seeking maneuver. But love practices self-denial. Self-denial. Even saying it that way urges us to say, I need to think more about this, about how this attribute of Jesus Christ can be manifested in my own life. And it starts with the sovereignty of God and the sacrifice of Christ to redeem you. And it tells you that you are not your own. You are bought with a price, which leads you to to willingly lay down your own life, lay down your own interests, put to death your own selfish desires in order to serve others. Think about this in the context of fellowship. The context of fellowship, selfishness does more damage than you can ever imagine. It leads you to grasp after attention. It prompts you to act in a way that says, I'm more important than you. It leads you to exert your own effort <clears throat> You exert your own efforts to get what you want. <clears throat> but self-denial curbs your desires. It curbs your desires that can so easily run out of, contr- out of control and harm yourself and others. It helps you to bridle your tongue so that you don't use it to get your own way. It even reshapes your thoughts. Instead of always thinking about yourself... Out of love, you discipline your mind to esteem others and to build them up. Love is not provoked, thinks no evil, two more that go together. To be provoked is to to not be easily angered, to harbor that anger as a record of wrongs. It's the way that some translations interpret, think no evil, I like the The New American Standard says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. This means that that the arsenal of an angry person is 
is deep and vicious. As it deals with someone else, it may remember a wrong and even go back into the catalog that they have kept of that wrong and lump you into that forever and ever. Or it assumes that they know exactly what you did and exactly why you did it and become angry over what is perceived rather than what has actually happened. And then they use that anger to lash out, sometimes in a violent fury, in order to beat you down. Or they may use it in a suppressed way of anger that is quiet and seething that punishes you in order to get their way. Jesus links us to murder. Think about that. Jesus links us to murder. I hope you can easily see the damage that anger does to Christian fellowship. Christ and his love for you will teach you to put off anger, wrath, and malice, Colossians 3, and to put on the new man, put on the new woman that is filled with wonder that God has loved you rather than being angry with you forever. Finally, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. To rejoice in iniquity is to make sin the object of your own desire. That can can take a variety of forms. It may be uh, that, that you have cuddled up to a private sin yourself. And that desire is what you uh, give all of your attention. You make excuses for it. And you make time for it. You rejoice in that iniquity. It may be that you even see it in others And you join in with that. You encourage them in their sin, all the while harboring the same thing. Or it may be that you come to gloat over your friend's fall into sin. You rejoice in that perverse thing. Really, to be glad to see a brother or sister stumble in their sin and to rejoice over it or to gossip about it with others, sharing private things, sharing them in a way that makes you look better, rejoicing in their iniquity. Love replaces that perverted joy with godly and pure joy that rejoices in the truth. Love replaces it. It replaces zeal for some secret sin with zeal for the Lord 
and joy in, in being more and more Christ-like replaces gloating another's failure with compassion and prayer. It replaces gossip with respect for that other person, for their reputation. It rejoices in the truth. You are a sinner saved by the grace of God. Can you see why Paul calls this the more excellent way? In a sense, it doesn't matter how God has gifted you. The Lord has gifted each one of you, says chapter 12. He's given each one of you a measure of the Spirit. He enables you to live beyond yourself. To put to death those sinful and selfish desires that all of that that revolves around you and to replace it with Christ and to love him and to love others and to do so genuinely. This is a more excellent way and it is not natural. This does not come through a TED Talk. This comes by the grace of God and through conversion. You cannot be like Christ unless you are a Christian, which means to convert or or to, uh, uh, to lay aside all of your claims to yourself, to lay aside all of your self that satisfying desires and aggrandizing and promotion and say, I am Christ, now and forever. And as he has loved me, so I will love him. And as he has loved me, so I will love you as well. It doesn't come naturally. And it doesn't come easily. But it is the more excellent way. So we'll close with where we started the service today, with 1 John 4. If God has so loved you, we also ought to love one another. What's love got to do with it? Let's have everything to do with our fellowship. As you have been loved by God, brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Amen. Lord our God, we confess the sins that so easily wrap us up, sins of selfishness, really. Lord, I pray that you would free us from that bondage. We believe that you have. You have broken those chains and set us free to follow after you. And I pray, O God, that in this point, that we would be exercising Christian love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Close by singing Psalm 146, Selection A. 146, Selection A, that rejoices that we have indeed been loved. And it speaks of a variety of ways that the Lord 
uh, the, the Lord demonstrates that love, but it closes with, in stanza four, how the Lord loves all the righteous, protects the strangers, strangers stay. It goes on to meditate on the love of God that we have received. Let's praise him for that. 146a, please stand to sing.